0: This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710 37 Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L. 3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. An explanation and defence of the terms of communion adopted by the community of the centres, together with an introduction containing some remarks on the propriety of terms of communion in general, the whole intended to obviate some modern objections and to satisfy the minds of those who are willing to be informed on the subject by the Reformed Presbytery, as read by Lea Domes. Tape number two. The enemies with whom the Covenanters had to do were not simply chargeable with heretical opinions, peaceably retained with themselves, but with heretical opinions manifested, supported, and propagated, in a seditious and treasonable manner. This is attested by the preamble to the solemn league and covenant itself, the well authenticated histories of that period, and other unexceptionable vouchers. The miseries of Ireland, says Mr. Henderson, who was personally concerned in framing the league, and the distresses of England, and the dangers of the kingdom of Scotland growing to greater extremity and the convention of the states, upon their meeting received information of divers treacherous attempts of papists in all the three kingdoms. The Westminster Assembly, in their exhortation to the taking of the covenant, expect many cheerfully to join in this happy bond for putting an end to the present miseries and for saving both the king and kingdom from utter ruin now so strongly and openly labored by the popish faction and such as have been bewitched and besotted by that viperous and bloody generation speaking concerning false kinds of peace Mr. Tesdale, a member of the assembly observes you may soon discover here the peace of our adversaries the agreement of atheists and papists priests and prelates Irish rebels, and English traitors to ruin church and commonwealth. We see then that the persons of whom the malignant factions were composed sustained a double character. They were at once obstinate gainsayers of the truth as it is in Jesus and seditious enemies to the state. The remedy behooved to be suited unto the disease. Accordingly we find that the solemn league though loosely taken it may be considered as a religious covenant yet when strictly viewed is evidently a complex oath containing not only a religious vow to be for God and not for another but also an oath of allegiance to the civil government in the defense of the nation's precious liberties. No wonder then that the censures be also twofold, civil and ecclesiastical pains. But were they administered indiscriminately and out of their proper place? By no means. Considered simply as obstinate enemies to the religion of Christ or as scandalous in their practice, the offenders were brought before the church and proceeded against by her censures, sometimes even to excommunication. But proving, as many of them did, still irreclaimable and persisting in their seditious and treasonable measures, they were also considered as rebels in the state and were then, and not sooner, delivered over to the civil power to be punished accordingly. Is it not still the custom, and reckoned a warrantable custom too, to punish seditious and treasonable persons with civil pains? It will, no doubt, be objected why did our reformers give their covenant this form? Could they not have framed two distinct covenants or oaths, the one civil and the other religious? To this we reply that from the calamitous circumstances of the time they could scarcely be considered as having proper room left for a choice in that respect the complex evil and the double character were already before them and therefore they framed their covenant so as to meet the double danger they might indeed have split it into two and sworn the one on the one day and the other on the other but where would have been the substantial difference if things are kept distinct in themselves and each observe in its own place, though they should be done by the same men and on the same general occasion, the harm cannot be very great. Doth not the Christian, acting in character, perform both civil and religious duties every day of his life? Why then may he not, in the same covenant, solemnly engage to do both, But in order to substantiate the charges of compulsory measures in matters of religion, a character must be found exactly of the following description. A person in every other respect, a peaceably and inoffensive member of society, propagating no opinions nor chargeable with any practices injurious to the peace and happiness of mankind, but only found to entertain some religious scruples in his own mind about the propriety of the covenants or such like in all other respects harmless. If it can be proved that men of this description had corporal punishments inflicted upon them by the authority of church and state, it will be doing something to the purpose. But all arguing from the complex character without attending to the distinctions observed by our reformers themselves, is evidently inconclusive. As it is a subject of much discussion in our times, we crave the attention of our readers to a few additional extracts, out of many which might be produced in defense of the ancient covenanters against the charge of unwarrantable compulsion in matters purely religious. The famous assembly at Westminster, in their exhortation to the taking of the covenants, when answering the objection about the extirpation of prelacy, positively declare, Nor is any man hereby bound to offer any violence to their persons, but only in his place, and calling to endeavor their extirpation in a lawful way. This exhortation was read and approved in the English House of Commons Mr. Coleman a member of the Assembly in reply to the query whether by any law divine or human may reformation of religion be brought in by arms says I answer negatively it is not the sword is not the means which God hath ordained to propagate the gospel go and teach all nations not go and subdue all nations, is our master's precept. Mr. Carroll, another member of the assembly, and whose praise is also in the churches, in his sermon at a public convention for the taking of the covenant, hath these very plain and expressive words Where conscience is indeed unsatisfied, we should rather pity than impose, and labor to persuade rather than violently to obtrude. Mr. Palmer, also a member of the Assembly, had an able advocate for the covenanted interest, thus ingeniously teacheth, I know a difference is to be put when we come to deal with persons tainted with dangerous opinions. Some are to be handled with all compassionate tenderness as being scrupled through weakness and infirmity. But others who are not only obstinate but active to seduce and breed confusion must be saved with fear as pulling them out of the fire and that they may set others on fire also. Though still a spirit of meekness is requisite even towards such in regard to their persons. Mr. Thorogood who also ranks in the Honorable List of Westminster Divines very honestly declares his sentiments on the subject. Fierce and furious prosecution, says he, even of a good cause is rather prejudice than promotion. We must tenaciously adhere to all divine truths ourselves and with our wisest moderation labor to plant and propagate them in others. Opposites indeed must be opposed said reclaimed but all must be done in a way and by the means appointed from heaven it is one thing to show moderation to pious, peaceable and tender consciences it is another thing to proclaim beforehand toleration to impious, fiery and unpeaceable opinions let moderation be so much awake that discipline fall not asleep The Papists, indeed, expect your moderation, and surely such should be shown them as may preserve your lives and the kingdoms from their frauds and cruelties. Though their religion, like Draco's laws, be written in blood, yet none of them ever suffered death among us, merely for religion. One extract more shall at present suffice. Mr. Gillespie, our young but singularly judicious commissioner to the Westminster Assembly, meets this objection. Why are we forced and compelled into the covenant? Answer 1. If any known malignant or complier with the rebels or with any enemy of this cause hath been received either to the covenant or sacraments without signs of repentance, I mean such as men in charity ought to be satisfied with for their formal malignancy and scandal. It is more than ministers and elderships can answer, either to God or to the acts and constitutions of this national church. I trust all faithful and conscientious ministers have labored to keep themselves pure in such things. 2. Men are not otherwise drawn or forced into the covenant then into other necessary duties nay it ought not to be called a forcing or compelling are men forced to spare their neighbor's life because murder is severely punished or are men compelled to be loyal because traitors are exemplarily punished there may and must be a willingness and freeness in the doing of the contrary duty although great sins must not go unpunished Men are not compelled to virtue because vice is punished, else virtue were not a virtue. Those that refuse the covenant, reproach it or rail against it, ought to be looked upon as enemies to it and dealt with accordingly. Yet if any man were known to take the covenant against his will, he were not to be received. Such sentiments plainly show that our reformers were pretty well acquainted with the nature of Christ's spiritual kingdom, Christian liberty, and the rights of conscience, and that they would suffer little, or rather nothing at all, by a comparison with the most enlightened modern writers on the subject. It is hoped that our readers will carefully observe that the doctrines contained in the above extracts of which kind many more can be produced, were not spoken in a corner or amongst a few select friends. They were delivered in the most open manner and before the most public associations, composed of all ranks and degrees of men in the kingdom. They were heard, approved, and ordered to be published by the highest authorities in church and state. At the very time when, in their respective places and stations, they were employed in taking and enforcing the covenants. To an unbounded liberty for every man to think and act as he pleases, even in contempt of righteous laws, whether human or divine, these champions for truth were indeed strangers. But of liberty without licentiousness, they seem to have had pretty correct ideas. A modern writer whose sentiments in general appear to be abundantly liberal and who will not very readily be convicted of narrow-mindedness or bigotry says, I denominate that a state of liberty in which every man's person, property, and free agency is secured and circumscribed by laws which have been agreed to by the majority of the people at large either in their own persons or by a representation primarily and tactically, if not expressly allowed by the people. Salutary restraint, he adds, is the very principle of liberty, and they who, from their restless disposition or from misapprehension, endeavor to throw off every species of coercion are in reality enemies to that freedom which they pretend to promote. He is speaking chiefly of civil liberty as circumscribed by the salutary laws of the state but the same doctrine substantially will apply to religious liberty as circumscribed by the righteous laws of Christ in the church. The covenants respect both. And however much our reformers might have differed from this author on some other topic it is obvious that with respect to coercion or legal restraint, they ordinarily acted upon the same general principle which he here recognizes. The covenants and other corresponding public deeds of that time were the result of general and mature deliberation. They were adopted by the mutual consent of the nation's representatives at large, both in church and state. In obtaining this consent, our worthy forefathers insisted much and frequently on the propriety of acting from judgment and conscience. They showed much holy diligence to have all ranks of men well informed concerning the nature, the wantableness, and the seasonableness of such covenants. If any otherwise peaceable and inoffensive subjects in church and state had religious scruples in their own mind both the open doctrine and uniform practice of our pious ancestors recommended all possible tenderness in laboring to have these removed. But on the other hand, when cruel popish factions under the fair pretense of only claiming a liberty to serve God in their own way were plotting the utter ruin of both church and state and seeking the overthrow of all laws, human and divine, in such a case, indeed, they could not help thinking that salutary restraint and well-regulated coercion were indispensably necessary. And what nation under heaven, properly consulting her own safety and happiness in time of danger, would not find it advisable to act on the same great principle? But after all, even though we should allow that some acts of council, of parliament or of assembly, are expressed in terms too rigorous, and manifest rather too much keenness, to have the covenants imposed on all men in the kingdom, whether reason were or none, how does that affect the cause? Whatever high opinion we may have of these acts in general, they were never incorporated into our standards or testimonies, nor is the approbation of them ever imposed on any person, as a term of admission to the privileges of the Church. We never asserted that, even in the best period of Reformation, the Church was perfect, or that every particular measure, on every occasion and in every place, whether in England or Scotland, was, in all its circumstances, defensible and proper. The Confession and Covenants themselves are neither the better nor the worse for the manner in which they were at first enforced. It hath been a received maxim in all ages that amidst great and public dangers some severe laws have been enacted rather with the design of striking terror into restless opposers than with a view of being literally executed in every instance of transgression. If we be really the friends of our covenanting ancestors How is it that we will not make the same allowances for them which have been made for all other men in similar circumstances ever since the world began? Should any to excuse their opposition say they have nothing to do with the above or with any other sentiments of our reformers in the rest of their writings the plain language of the standards themselves warrants their objections. It is evident this amounts to the same thing as to say that they have nothing to do with Christian candor or that charity which thinketh no evil but rather teacheth us to hear even our opponent to an amen and to allow him the liberty of explaining himself. Were the objectors to find detached expressions selected from their writings or speeches and tortured in the most unmerciful manner without admitting their connection with the other parts of the same writings or with the uniform practice of the same men, it is presumed that they would embrace the earliest opportunity of claiming that same liberty for themselves which they very unreasonably refused to our reformers. Fully satisfied, therefore, that the contents of our Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms are agreeable to the Word of God finding such dubious-like expressions as may seem at first sight rather to favor unwarrantable coercion to be very clearly explained in other writings of the same men and convinced that both the ancient and modern objections against them are ill-founded. We reckon it still our duty and expect it of all who wish to hold communion with us to approve and adhere to them substantially as they stand. On Article 3, this article requires our assent to the divine right and original of Presbyterian church government. As the great body of the inhabitants of Scotland profess themselves Presbyterians, the propriety of this article, it is hoped, will not be much disputed. But though it should, it doth not comport with our present design to enlarge on the subject. That the power of church discipline and government is not lodged in the community of the faithful at large but is entrusted to the office bearers or public and regularly installed ministers of the church appears perfectly obvious from the distinction which is constantly made through the whole of the New Testament between the spiritual rulers called to labor in word and doctrine or to rule with diligence and those who are to be subject to them in the Lord, obeying them and esteeming them highly in love for their work's sake. It is no less evident from our Lord's words, addressing to the Apostle Peter and his fellow disciples, now solemnly called and set apart to the work of the ministry by himself as king upon the holy hill of Zion. Upon this rock says he, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew 16, 18 and 19 The same thing is also manifest from those inspired epistles addressed to the angels or ministry of the churches in Asia the ministry in one of these churches is sharply reproved for retaining in communion persons who were erroneous and openly scandalous while the ministry of another is much commended for casting them out Revelation 2 plainly importing that the power of ministerially binding and loosing in the name and according to the laws of Christ was lodged with them. That lesser ecclesiastical courts of more limited inspection and jurisdiction should consider themselves as subordinated unto greater courts where there are more counselors and consequently the higher probability of safety in passing such decisions as are of general concern is sufficiently obvious from the sacred description of that venerable synod which met at Jerusalem in the days of the apostles. Acts 15 While it perfectly harmonizes with the nature and comely order of all society in general, and that the church's adored head allows no superiority to any one individual minister of the gospel above another, but considers them all as brethren of equal authority, is clear as noonday, from his own express and very pointed language. Ye know, says he, that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. One is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. Neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock, Matthew chapter 20 verse 25-26 and chapter 23 verse 8 The indiscriminate use of the words bishop or presbyter in the New Testament to signify one and the same official character and the granting to a judicial meeting of presbyters the power of ordination which is the highest power claimed in the church also proclaim the equality of the gospel ministers. The Presbyterian form of church government, therefore agreeable to our subordinate standards, seems to be the only form which can properly claim a divine original. It makes a distinguished part of the faith once delivered to the saints in these covenanted aisles of the sea. In the support and defense of it, Our pious and venerable ancestors made a noble stand, many of them resisting unto blood, striving against sin, and not reckoning their lives dear unto themselves. If so be, they might transmit it in its original simplicity and purity to the rising race as the divinely appointed and comely order of Christ's house we accordingly consider it as still deserving a place in our terms of admission to the privileges of the Church. Those who wish to see its claim to a divine original fully demonstrated by strong and conclusive arguments may consult, among others, the publications mentioned at the foot of the page. On Article 4, The fourth article respects the perpetual obligation of our solemn covenants and the propriety of the renovation at Arkansas 1712. The great and important duty of public covenanting, even in New Testament times, hath been so fully illustrated and clearly defended in many publications, both ancient and modern, that we reckon it quite superfluous enter into a discussion of the subject here while we firmly believe that the public covenants of ancient Israel comprehended great and important moral duties equally incumbent upon men in all periods of the church while we find that the first commandment of the moral law in the true scope of it requires us to avouch the Lord to be our God and to preserve in his worship and service the very substance of all proper religious covenanting, while we cannot refuse that the third commandment rightly understood plainly teaches us to fear the Lord our God and, when lawfully called unto it, to swear by his name, while we read many precious predictions in the Old Testament foretelling that in the days of the Messiah men should subscribe with their hand unto the Lord Vow a vow unto him and perform it and should say come and let us join ourselves unto the Lord in a perpetual covenant never to be forgotten and while we find that every baptized Christian taking the Bible into his hand as a rule of his faith and practice sitting down at the holy table of the Lord and opening his mouth in a public profession of the Christian religion evidently doth what is to all intents and purposes substantially the same with solemn covenanting. Though we had no other arguments for it, we cannot withhold our consent to the propriety of our ancestors' conduct and taking the burden upon them for themselves and their posterity, that they would be for God and not for another. In the believing improvement of his gracious promise, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee a very slight attention to our solemn covenants will serve to show that the matter of them is scriptural and that therefore they may be safely sworn as to the national covenant of Scotland Its great object is, evidently, the renouncement of popery, together with all superstitions of the same description. But if the Church of Rome be the mystical Babylon of the New Testament, if the Romish Church indeed be false, blasphemous, idolatrous, bloody, soul ruining, and deceitful, as hath often been abundantly proved, as the Presbytery have shown in their testimony warning against popery, then the divine injunction applies in its full force, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Our obedience to this sovereign command is very properly testified by seriously swearing in the name and strength of the Lord never to touch the unclean thing. A great many acts of Parliament are introduced into this national covenant. The reason is sufficiently obvious. Our reformers at that time were considered by many as taking too much upon them, acting beyond their commission, and laying themselves open to the charge of seditious conduct. In their own vindication, they quoted these numerous acts, to prove that they were doing nothing but what was authorized by the fundamental laws of the kingdom, as well as by the word of God. If those who approve of the covenant have an opportunity of seeing and reading these acts for their own satisfaction, it is well they should certainly embrace the opportunity. At the same time, though they should never have it in their power to see one of them, yet it is practicable for them to swear the covenant itself, in truth, in righteousness, and in judgment. They have the body of this solemn deed, and may at all times compare it with the infallible standard of right and wrong. It is also observable that, in describing the various abominations of popery, the national covenant employs many terms, which, though familiar to the Church of Rome, that mystery of iniquity, yet cannot well be supposed to be fully understood by every Protestant reader who may consent unto the covenant. This much, however, he may see at once that these strange and anti-scriptural terms must be descriptive of such human inventions as are entirely beside the word of God being added to the things contained in that sacred book and therefore ought to be rejected. An instance or two will serve to illustrate this. We renounce his five bastard sacraments. Everyone probably does not know that these are marriage, ordination, confirmation, penance, and extreme unction. But Christians in general can very easily know that the only sacraments in the New Testament are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And consequently that no institution besides can ever consistently be admitted as a proper sacrament. Mention is made of the Pope's shavelings. There may possibly be many sincere believers in the Protestant churches who cannot tell that these mean his monks or friars of different orders who have their heads shaven in different forms to mark their distinguished pretended holiness. But all may know that no such orders were ever appointed by Christ, and, therefore, the doctrine respecting them can make no part of the faith delivered to the saints. The same may be said of all the other anti-Christian abominations. Meanwhile, it is not intended to discourage, but rather to recommend such proper researches after the knowledge of these things as may enable us to oppose them with judgment and precision. Turning our attention to the solemn league of the three nations, we find that in the first article we engage to preserve the true Reformed religion where it is already established and to carry forward the Reformation where it is not yet completed. Seeing of the scriptures that this is our duty, Whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Remember how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast. Leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I have appointed thee. Philippians 3.16, Revelation 3.3, Hebrews 6.1, Titus 1.5 In the second article, we profess to use our best endeavors without partiality for the extirpation of popery, prelacy, superstition, heresy, schism, profaneness and whatsoever shall be found contrary to sound doctrine and the power of godliness. All these have oftentimes been clearly proved to be gross corruptions of Jehovah's worship and open violations of his holy law, concerning which his express language is, Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump. Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Deuteronomy 12, 31 and 32. First Corinthians 5, 7. Matthew 15:13. In the third article, we undertake to preserve the rights and privileges of the civil authorities in the preservation and defense of true religion and liberties of the kingdoms. Nothing can be more consonant to the divine injunctions, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. He is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he is a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doth evil. Pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, Romans 13, 4, and 6. In these passages, the lawful authority, official character, and important duty of the magistrate are inseparably connected with the people's obedience and support. In Article 4, we solemnly resolve to employ our endeavors for discovering and bringing seasonably to condign punishment all such incendiaries and malignants as wickedly hinder the reformation and foment divisions in the kingdoms which is nothing more than what the Lord himself requires when he says execute judgment in the morning and deliver him that is spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor take us the foxes the little foxes that spoil the vines beware of dogs beware of evil workers beware of the concision Jeremiah twenty-one twelve, Song two fifteen, Philippians three two. In Article fifth, we swear to do what we can in our respective places for preserving to all posterity the settled peace and union of the kingdoms. The union principally intended respects the common faith delivered to the saints in all its branches and therefore the endeavoring to keep it exactly corresponds to the inspired recommendation, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4.3 In the last article of this league, we bind ourselves to assist and defend each other and jointly to preserve in prosecuting the great ends of the covenant without giving place to indifference or defection. God himself certainly commands so much. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Galatians six two, Philippians 1.27, 1 Corinthians 15.58. To covenants the matter of which is so evidently agreeable to the unalterable precepts of the moral law, we may safely apply the inspired Apostle's language. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Galatians 3.15 Indeed, if it can once be proved, as it has often been in the most convincing manner, that the Church as such, as well as men in other capacities, may warrantably enter into public scriptural covenants at all, their obligation must necessarily be perpetual, inasmuch as the Church, collectively considered, is still the same permanent society, which can never die, though the individuals of whom she may have been composed, in any given period, should be no more. And, if even civil deeds amongst men, when they are legally executed, bind not only the persons presently entering into them, but them, their heirs and successors to all generations, much more must we consider these religious covenants, which are executed according to the revealed will of our heavenly lawgiver, to be binding not only upon the generation of the church, more immediately entering into them, but also on their heirs and successors to the end of the world. Concerning these covenants, some have proposed the query, in what sense can they be said, as they are in our testimony, to be of divine authority or obligation? We reply, the divine authority of heaven's great sovereign is, evidently interposed in requiring us to enter into such covenants. Vow unto the Lord your God. And when, once we have entered into them, the same divine authority binds us to performance, pay that which thou hast vowed. Add to these that the great and dreadful name, the Lord our God, is invoked in the solemn transaction, while his declarative glory among men is deeply concerned in the faithful fulfillment of our engagements. So that, besides the intrinsic obligation of the covenants, feeds simply as human deeds whereby men bind their souls, there is in all such covenants an obligation of divine authority, requiring first to make and then to perform our covenants, from the invocation of the divine name, considering Jehovah as witness and avenger, and from the interfering with the divine glory, in the keeping or violating of our oath. Hence, in the scripture, the same oath is, in one respect, considered as the covenant of the man giving his hand, and in another respect as the Lord's covenant whose glory is concerned in it. Ezekiel 17, 18 and 19 Our testimony, if properly attended to, explains itself, telling us the covenants are of divine authority or obligation as having their foundation upon the word of God. Some have also questioned whether or not the covenants can properly lay us under any additional obligations to duty besides what we are already under from the divine law. In all disputes, the explaining of our terms is highly requisite. If by additional or super obligation be meant something introduced to supply a defect or to bind where we were at liberty, it is plain that no human covenants can, in this sense, impose a superadded obligation, for God's law is absolutely perfect, and necessarily binds to every possible duty, both as to matter and manner, according to the station which we
1: fill. MONTON, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L, three T5. You may also request a free printed catalogue. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart,